Thank you for joining us today for TEDCO Talks, a new series featuring thought leaders in economic development from across the state of Maryland. Join TEDCO CEO, Troy Lamel Stovall, in thought-provoking conversations with regional leaders about the future of Maryland's innovation ecosystem. In this episode, Troy is joined by Tom Barkin, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Listen now to learn more about Tom and the role he plays in supporting Maryland and DC's entrepreneurial ecosystem. Greetings, everyone. My name is Troy Lamel Stovall. I'm the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director for Maryland TEDCO. I couldn't be more excited today about our guest. Um, many of you know I spent some time uh, at McKinsey. And so uh, Tom Barkin is uh, an old friend of mine. Uh, we'll, we'll introduce what he's doing today, but he's an old friend of mine from McKinsey. And, and most importantly, particularly, one of the things we'll talk about today is when we were at McKinsey, Tom was one of uh, not just a supporter of mine and a mentor for me, but he was a huge supporter of, of, at that time, we called the Black Client Service Staff. I know they don't call that anymore at McKinsey, helping us identify sources of talent that McKinsey didn't traditionally uh, source. And he was a big supporter of that. So Tom Barkin, who is the, the, the president of the of Richmond Fed or Federal Reserve Bank or Richmond Fed. Um, Tom, thanks again for being on TEDCO Talks. No, this will be fun, Troy. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. So let's start off with, uh, you know, we're in the middle, we're, we're hopefully we're at the end of this COVID thing. Um, and why don't you tell folks a little bit about kind of how you've kind of managed yourself over these last, what, 14 to 15 months, what's personally, um, and then also professionally, how you've managed the Fed over these last uh, year, almost year and a half. Yeah, so we'll talk uh, uh, professional first. What we yeah, did with the Fed is, um, uh, with the exception of our cash team, everyone else has been working from home. And that was a shock as it was to most people, but uh, we got through it just fine. Our technology team did a great job. And so our team has been and is still working from home with the exception of our cash processors and our law enforcement uh, unit who are obviously protecting the cash that our cash people are, are processing. So, you know, that's how the feds worked uh, professionally. Obviously from a, a policy standpoint, uh, we were struck in March with this looming cliff that was ahead of us. And we did all of the stuff that I hope you would think we should do. We took rates down to zero. Um, we invested to repair financial markets, which were really teetering on the edge uh, uh, by buying a bunch of bonds and, and by backstopping a lot of other asset classes with facilities that we had authority to do and some others that Congress gave us uh, authority to do. And you know now we're hopefully closing in on the back end of it. And uh, you know, I hope and think eventually starting the process of, of normalization. For me personally, like everybody else, I went home and uh, mm. my wife and I, uh, who've been married uh, almost 30 years, our prior record for most consecutive nights in the <laughs> same room was three weeks. And so I traveled as a consultant my whole life and, yeah. and even as a Fed president. And so um, first of all, we broke that record and I'm happy to tell you that went well. Um, I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, we had both of my, uh, my daughter who's a junior in college and my son who's 25, they were both home for about two or three months, which was great fun. Uh, but in June, uh, she went and worked a summer job. Uh, he, for reasons I don't fully understand, decided he preferred to be with his girlfriend than with us. And uh, and I uh, sort of said, I can't do my job from either my my uh, office or my uh, my home office or my work office. You know, I'm supposed to stay in touch with ha what's happening in the economy. And so, starting last June, I got back out in the economy. And of course, 
totally in a socially distanced way. Um, you know, I would go to a community, I would do out, outdoor lunches or outdoor dinners. I would do chamber of commerce sessions from the chamber of commerce in that city via zoom. And you learn a whole bunch of stuff when you do that, uh, mm -hmm. which economies have opened and which have not, you know, uh, the South Carolina economy opened a lot earlier than the Maryland economy, just to give a good uh, example. Um, you know, where there are help wanted signs and where they're not. You really do learn a lot from being uh, on the ground. And so, you know, I've been doing that luckily uh, safely, um, but also I think I've learned a ton uh, from that. And this is just an unprecedented set of issues. Yeah. You know, the economy went off a cliff, then it came back fast. And even today, you've got the situation where the economy is reopening at pace that no one could have expected. Suppliers can't meet demand. You can't find work. You know, all those things are going on. And it's just really helpful to be in my markets trying to understand that. So let's actually back up because folks may not know what the Fed does and what the Fed is, right? So um, let's just talk about the, the Fed in general, obviously the Richmond Fed that you lead. So we're the central bank of the United States uh, and we're the third central bank that has existed. The first two um, disappeared at various points in the 1800s. And after a panic in 1907, uh, everyone decided we really need a central bank, but we need to do it in a public-private partnership. So there is a public part of the central bank, uh, which is uh, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Jay Powell is the chair of that. They're in Washington, and they are a civil service you know, federal government agency. And then there are 12 regional banks, of which Richmond is one, uh, covering the United States. And we are actually private entities uh, you know, with private boards. And um, my district covers Maryland and West Virginia down south through South Carolina, but there are 12 of us. And, um, uh, and we cooperate with the Board of Governors. We all sit on the FOMC, which is the Monetary Policy Committee that sets interest rates. So one of the things we do is participate in the committee that sets interest rates. Uh, we also supervise the banks. So in my district, you've got small community banks, you've got Bank of America. We oversee those banks. Um, we process the cash. So, you know, when the mint prints the money, we're the ones who put it into circulation and we take the old cash and the counterfeit cash out of circulation. So we process the cash. We've got a community outreach and research organization that's trying to understand in depth uh, each of our communities. So that's that's our business. Uh, and then in Richmond, we also lead uh, technology for the Federal mm -hmm. Reserve System. And so um, issues of cyber and all those kind of things are on our list as well. So from the of a basic consumer, you said a couple of things and there are a lot of places we could go there, but from the from the, just a basic consumer, uh, they hear you know every other month the the the, the Fed has not has raised or not raised interest rates. I think that's the the public that most public, but all the other pieces of how the monetary system actually works, a lot of that comes to the Fed. Yeah, well, that is the FOMC. And the FOMC is the group that meets every six weeks. I sit on it. And we decide to raise rates, lower rates, or of course keep them the same. And so those are uh, those are the big choices we make. And and again, that is a, a group that has six governors that are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Jay Powell is the chair, and it's got twelve presidents, including me, who are uh, uh, nominated by their local boards and serve at the pleasure of those boards. So just wrapping up this COVID piece, just a little bit, Tom, just from you, I mean, what have you done for you? You say you had your family around you. Like you say, you mm -hmm. believe me, I remember the my McKinsey days of not uh, of traveling. And so uh, three weeks, is, that is a pretty, that's a pretty good stretch of not, not being on the road. But what has Tom done um, to just kind of keep your own sanity for yourself? And what do you think you're going to continue coming out of kind of this for yourself? Well, um, my lifestyle was uh, I would eat out 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and so the first thing I noticed is I lost 15 pounds. Ah, which, congratulations. You see, you I know you, most people went the other way. <laughs> I know when you look at me, it's hard to imagine I could have lost any weight to get here, but, um, but it was just eating. That's crazy. And so I have a strong intent to try to maintain that. I think my execution may be a challenge, but that's uh, one thing. Um, you know, actually, uh, my scope magnified massively. I used to do one chamber of commerce session a week because you had to get to the community. Yep. Now I'm doing five. Yep. I used to do six outreach conversations a week. Now I'm doing 20. Um, and I like being in person. There's no doubt in my mind that when you and I are together, um, you know, we, we, uh, we can uh, build relationships in a different way. You can build trust in a different way. You can see body language in a different way. Absolutely. On the other hand, the efficiency of being able to uh, do that, I think is, is crazy. So, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes. I'll also say, you know, when you lose your social life, because you're not out doing whatever it is you're doing, you replace it with something and, you know, you probably replaced it with Bridgerton, but I, re I replaced it with books. And so I'm one of these guys who has always owned a hundred books that I haven't read yet. And I'm down to about 12. So. Oh, look at you. So, no, it's funny. You said, so, you know, as you know, I've been doing this job since uh, September and I couldn't agree with you more. I've said, um, I have been brutally efficient with, I've, I've met more people since September than I could have possibly have met if this had been quote non pandemic times. And so that's got a goodness to it, but the relationship piece, but, but the part of that time I, I love your thoughts on is, but you know, we, we got to uh, have these zoom meetings in, in people's homes in their, in their, in their bedrooms sometimes. And the, there was a, a relaxing of, of, of things. And I think you got to have a little bit more personalization because there wasn't the formality in some cases, at least for me. And so I, I got a sense of people and some relationship development, but not, not to the extent you can have, but I, I actually think some of it actually did happen because some of the, the, the professional walls went down a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true. And even silly things, like I went to a dinner the other night uh, with three business people, they all wore suits and I was wearing khakis and a button down. And you know they felt terrible that they were wearing suits and I wasn't. I said, you know, I actually didn't even think about it. It'd been 15 months since I wore a suit. And I, of course I used to wear one uh, every day. Yeah. I do think you can break some of those barriers down, but I also think people have a Zoom face. And one yeah. thing that I used to really like uh, doing professionally and I hope to get back to is wandering the halls. And when you wander the halls, you can look in somebody's office and see if they're having a bad day yeah. and ask them a question. On Zoom, you don't see that. Uh, you know, if, uh, if you're walking out of a meeting that just went a little crazy, you can say, let's walk around the block for a second and debrief that. If I walk off a Zoom meeting that was a little crazy, I have to call somebody and debrief it. And that just feels very different. They don't see your body language. They don't know that you're a, a warm elder giving them an arm around the shoulder. They wonder if you're actually giving them direct <laughs> feedback. And, and so I, I just think a lot of those dimensions that uh, bind people together and that bind institutions together are challenged in this remote model. And so you know, we're going to have to evolve to something different. But I wrote an essay on this recently, which I had fun with, which is we all think we know what it's going to be like, but the market hasn't had its say yet. Amen. And what I mean by that is, you know, you may think that you're going to keep all your workers at home and I may think that I'm going to bring them all back. Well, let's compete it out. I don't know which business model is better. You may think you want to work completely from home. I may think I want all my employees in the office. Okay. 
you know, I bet there's some employees that are going to flock to me. And I bet there's some employees that are going to flock to, to you. By the way, if I could have my employees totally remote, I have to ask the question of, are they in the lowest cost location? Because yep. it's not clear to me if there's no affiliation in the workplace, what the you know, benefit of a higher cost workforce promoted. So all those questions, I think, are going to be competed out in the market. And I think there'll be a real uh, you know, movement over the next several years as we try to sort out what are the winning models. And I, I'm, I'm not sure I know what they are, but I'm pretty confident it's not going to be as easy as most people think to figure that out. Yeah, you know, as you know, when, when, when I was at McKinsey and you were at McKinsey, there was, we had, a, a, we had some partners, some friends of ours that talked about the war for talent. And there was mm-hmm. some so I actually think of it's going to be the war of the nature of work. The nature of work is what you just, that's, that's the conversation I'm actually having here at Tedco and at, with our portfolio companies is what's going to be the nature of work uh, going forward. So it's not so much about office space, but it's how you treat your talent and how you manage that talent uh, to your point, because it is about the, retra- the, the attraction and the retention of talent is at the end of the day, what's going to make great companies. And that's what was, that was great about McKinsey, right? Yeah. Well, I think, it's, I think it's both. I think companies have to be really attuned to what talent wants. But I think talent needs to be long-term in terms of how they think about their own development. And so many things have come to me in my life because I've built relationships. And those relationships have led to me getting opportunities. And so if you're working completely from home, talent may want that. But 10 years from now, are you going to have the same set of relationships? And what are you doing to build those? Um, uh, You know, I think there are a lot of studies that suggest that collaboration and innovation and trust are built better in person. You know, maybe we'll learn to do that, you know, technologically in a better way. I should be open to that. But I think there's a real, you know, companies need to think about how are they going to get enough talent? But talent needs to think about how are they going to get enough value so that they're actually competitive in their world? And that's something people don't talk as much about right now that I think is going to be pretty, uh, pretty interesting to, to, uh, to see how it evolves. Well, look, I just mentioned, I've mentioned a couple of times McKinsey. And so um, let's just talk a little bit about Tom and Tom's journey, uh, kind of how you got to the Fed. Um, And, you know, really Tom, what I really want to you know, not because again, you've had a great career. I know a little bit of it, and you've had a great career, great time in McKinsey. Again, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. The work you did at McKinsey with me, but kind of that talking to someone who might be listening to you that is on a similar type of journey that you went on and, and is facing some crossroads, and how you how you dealt with some of the crossroads in your career. Well, so I'll just talk about Tom because it is my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Tampa. I went to public schools there. Um, uh, did well. Uh, and when I was a senior in high school, applied to three or four Southern schools and Harvard. And Harvard was kind of a lark uh, for me because it had a good name and I didn't know anything about it. I actually visited there and hated it. Um, but there was something about the name. And then uh, I got in and I think I just decided, well, if I went there and I didn't like it, I could always transfer. But if I went somewhere else and didn't like it, you know, I couldn't transfer up. And so I went to an institution where I didn't have the education. I didn't have the pedigree. uh, I didn't have the uh, relationships. I'd Mm -hmm. never been in New York. I mean, there's a lot of places that, and, uh, and that was actually, as it turns out, great for me because I went from being uh, the smartest kid in my uh, high school class to being Tom. And, you know, uh, people thought I was uh, not that smart because I had a Southern accent and, um, uh, but actually pretty funny, which I kind of liked. And so it built, I built out my personality, uh, went there, did well, 
Uh, my dad had been a lawyer. I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. And so I went to law school. Um, uh, but I'd done a lot of economics in college and kind of fallen in love with it. And uh, a lot of people who did economics in college applied to business school. So I, I applied to business school sort of as a lark, um, you know, sort lark of getting a lark. master's. Just another, lark. just another lark for you. You just kept doing these larks. Yeah, well, I, maybe that is a theme. I don't know. Or it's a word I use a lot, one of those. But I think there's something about uh, walking into the unknown. Yeah. And I I, th- I thought I'd just do that. And, uh, um, you know, law school was fun, but actually business school was a lot more interesting and a lot more exciting. So, again, it's the second place I put myself that wasn't necessarily a natural place, but that, you know, I learned a ton and um, uh, met a bunch of folks at McKinsey. I'd always wanted to come back somewhere in the South and uh, they were hiring in Atlanta. Uh, it was a, at that point a 25 person office, which was a very small startup. And uh, felt it would be an exciting thing to do. And, uh, and I loved every bit of that. I spent 30 years at McKinsey. Um, uh, served a lot of clients in uh, airlines, served some in banking. Um, but actually, probably five or six years in, decided what I really was excited about was McKinsey people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that wasn't a classic profile, Troy, as you know. I mean, there were a lot of people who were very focused on clients and a lot of people who were very focused on knowledge. I was very focused on people. And so I ran recruiting for our office for seven years. Um, I ran recruiting uh, for the firm at uh, Harvard Business School for a couple of years, during which my greatest success was hiring Troy. Um, I uh, uh, ended up uh, leading initiatives for the institution on how we could do better at leading people. I mentored a zillion people. I I invested a bunch of stuff on something that the institution at the time didn't really say that it valued, or maybe it said that it valued it, but no one really believed it. Similarly, I've always had a, one of the reasons I moved to Atlanta is I wanted to be part of a community, smaller community. Um, and so I always invested in local community stuff. And so I invested in that too. And again, it was not something that was directly on the incentive list, but it was something I wanted to do. And I guess I just had the confidence to walk into a couple of places that I didn't naturally uh, get the message I should go walk into and try to make something happen. So people stuff worked out, lots of opportunities uh, at McKinsey. Um, but actually also the community stuff too. And so in my McKinsey career, I led our offices in uh, Atlanta, Miami, and Charlotte. I then, we merged with our Texas offices where Troy was, and I uh, led those in Dallas and Houston uh, as well. I ended up leading a bunch of people committees for the firm and compensation for the firm. Uh, Then strangely, I got asked to be the CFO. So I was the CFO of McKinsey for several years. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff uh, at McKinsey, and that uh, that was all good. Um, I also got to know everybody in Atlanta, and I went to a cocktail party one time and met Dennis Lockhart, who was then the president of the Richmond Fed, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the Atlanta Fed, and uh, I told him I was an economics major and I was passionate about what he did, and um, he asked to talk to me a couple times about what we were seeing at McKinsey, and then he asked me to join his board, and so I was on the board of the Atlanta Fed from 09 to 14, I was the chair in 13 and 14. And I just thought the institution was spectacular. It was uh, really smart people doing a really important mission. If you're a guy in business in 2009, you thought the Fed was the difference between us making it to the other side uh, and not. Um, I, so I was impressed with the mission, impressed with the people, uh, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, and three or four years later, uh, I was at retirement age. I, I, I'm very young in my own mind, but I was at retirement age at McKinsey. And so... Uh, I was ready to retire and think about what to do after. And I got a call from a headhunter suggesting I interviewed to join the Richmond Fed. 
And I knew Richmond, liked Richmond, uh, uh, a town I felt comfortable in, liked the Fed. Uh, back to my guess, my favorite word, it was kind of a lark putting my name in there. They don't, most of the people in my job are PhD economists, yep. uh, probably two thirds of them. Then yep. you've got some bankers and some lawyers, and but you don't have anyone with my background. And so, um, but I got through the interview process and, and took it on. So that's what another I'm doing lark, now. Another lark. Another, another lark. Another but lark. maybe there is a theme about, you know, putting yourself into places that wouldn't be natural and seeing what happened. Well, you know, several things I want to go there, Tom, just in my time left is one is that the, your people instincts and your people, you know, that as we said, people spike that you that you had. Clearly, that, that was a huge benefit to me. And I thank you for your words. But how have you carried that to the Fed? And, and more specifically, how have you carried that as you as we think about the impact that COVID and the economy has had on you know, people of color and women and, and folks who've been normally under, how we, how's a Fed and how's Tom thinking about, you know, what we can do to make some differences for those folks? Well, I think uh, I always start on these uh, issues related to, uh, you know, diversity by starting with the overall, because I think um, you can't be, you know, uh, creating a great environment for, you know, women if you don't create a great environment for everybody. And you can't create a great environment for minorities if you can't create a great environment for everybody. So. We start with the great environment for everybody, and I have a great COO, uh, and and she and I have uh, joined at the hip in the notion of, you know, how do we bring the specialness of our institution to those people who are remote? Mm-hmm. Um, you, we're doing more communication, more conversations with folks who are remote than earlier. We've, if you will, trained up a whole set of leaders on what it takes to lead a remote workforce, um, and we're pretty uh, pointed and, but I think helpful too with those leaders about what we're asking for and requiring. You know, you're not allowed to let people be orphans in this world, what you have to do to be engaging with people on a constant uh, basis. We've done our best to lead through it with transparency Mm -hmm. uh, and empathy. And so, you know, I'd say there's a lot we're trying to do, uh, you know, to make it a great experience for everybody. Um, We're also very focused on, uh, you know, broadly diversity and inclusion. Now I'll say the Fed is a much more diverse place than the private sector. it just is. We have uh, more women, more minorities, and more of a commitment to inclusion than I'm used to seeing in my former clients, uh, for example. But, you know, just because we're, I don't know, 45% women doesn't make us 50% women, right, which is the population. And just because we're 37% minorities doesn't mean we're not, you know, 50 or whatever the, the right number is. And so, uh, you know, I believe that uh, there's a piece to it, which is diversity, and a piece to it, which is inclusion. On the inclusion thing, We've started a, a, a set of sessions, which I think are pretty interesting, called Let's Connect, where our leaders start and talk, you know, sort of openly about their personal lives and struggles. Maybe that's kind of what you're doing with these programs, Troy. And uh, they're very open. And, you know, in the aftermath of some of the events of last summer, very raw. But I think they really do play a role in opening our leaders up um, to, you know, what it means to be an empathetic leader and also opening our leaders up to the experiences uh, of others. So we're really trying to invest in these conversations. I think uh, they help. We of course have affinity groups and all the normal stuff people do, but I think breaking down barriers means opening up and that's a big priority for us. In terms of uh, diversity, uh, I have a conversation every year with everyone who reports to me and everyone who reports to the people who report to me um, on their talent. And the conversation is not about talent, but it's about, I'm not about diversity, but it's about talent. But we do talk about succession. We talk about the people who are on the bench who are, you know, ready to be put into it. We put the people who 
maybe aren't performing that well and you mm-hmm. need to move. And importantly, we talk about talent strategy. And my impression is our institution's actually exceptional when it comes to opening their mind to the diversity of profiles and being willing to consider at the point of, let's say, promotion, um, you know, somebody with a different kind of profile. What we're not uh, great at is strategically sourcing people with a different kind of profile. And uh, for example, our, um, our hiring base tends to be pretty middle-aged. Um, it's because we don't pay that much, but our benefits are great. People and our culture is great. And people maybe go work somewhere for 10 or 15 years, then decide they want to come work with us. Mm-hmm. Well, in our technology organization, if you just hire uh, you know, folks who have 20 years of experience, you're going to not have as diverse a workforce as you do if you hire people straight out of school. That's just how technology has worked. And so asking the question, what can we do to diversify our sourcing pool, I think is a pretty powerful uh, element. And, and so, uh, you know, we had a summer intern program that was extremely diverse, but for reasons related to our budgetary process, we weren't hiring very many of them. So I asked the question, what does it take to, you know, hire 80% of our summers? It seems like basic stuff, but actually it meant changing some things about our protocol, taking some chances in the hiring process. So I think breaking down, I'll call it to move the needle at strategic. And, you know, you know, we did this at McKinsey where you went to uh, HBCUs 30 years ago, um, you know, as a, as a prime source, all those strategies for diversifying your input added to strategies for making sure you debias your, you know, selection criteria. I think you put those two together and they, they really have make an impact. I mean, that's great. You're right. That's a lot of what you I'm hearing from you now is what I heard from you, you know, e- eons ago when we were talking about going to HBCUs and, 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 and bringing them to, to, to McKinsey. But so that's the, the people side. So kind of maybe linking the Fed to Techco a little bit, you know, uh, you know, Techco, we, we're, we're an early stage investor uh, here in Maryland. But one of the things we're trying to talk about, Tom, is this diversity and inclusion uh, in terms of not just the founders and making sure that the founders are representative of Maryland in terms of the demographics that, that, that are here in Maryland, but also that their, their management teams, I like to call it employee number three, four, five, six, seven. Mm-hmm. And how do we make sure that those talent pools and those, those individuals are, are there? Um, and then the third piece of it, or maybe the, yeah, the third piece of it is you don't have uh, enough uh, access to capital for many of these folks who, 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 who come from these, you know, here in Maryland, we call them social and economically disadvantaged groups. And then the fourth bucket and the last bucket is you don't have folks uh, who manage monies who actually represent those groups as well. And so I actually argue that it's hard for you to invest in something that you can't, you've not experienced or have an understanding of. And so it's hard for the, the middle-aged white guy to invest in something that may be for, you know, black women. Uh, or, or for a, a particular community when they haven't had an experience around that that particular that type of or understanding of that service offering that they might be doing. So what if any of those of those four books it kind of has the Fed kind of talked to maybe about some of the banks around or some programs you're looking at? I know I'm working with some, some of your folks in Baltimore about some uh, fintech type of opportunities in that as well. But are there anything that you could talk about that, that address any or all of those uh, buckets? Well, um, we do oversee the banks in our district. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of programs there that, you know, are built to try to get uh, loans to low and moderate income and, you know, uh, in the fair lending case, disproportionately minority communities. So Mm -hmm. Fair Lending Act, CRA, 
uh, and the like. And we do work on that. We've launched a program called Investment Connections, yep. where uh, we've got uh, banks that are looking to make CRA loans and projects, CRA projects that don't really have access to any banks, where we're trying to, you know, I guess you call it a shark tank, trying to bring them together and, and make some matches. So that's another place, uh, you know, we're trying to do that on the on the lending side. We also have a research uh, organization and uh, we do and have done a lot of research into things like uh, small businesses and entrepreneurship and uh, 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 the drivers of the wealth gap or the income gap uh, by minorities. And, you know, you might ask, why do we even invest in that? You probably wouldn't, but some people do. And I just say, you know, our one of our two objectives is stable prices, maximum employment. Mm-hmm. Maximum employment is... Uh, I'll think of it as employment to population, getting as much out of the population as you can. Well, it turns out that some of the biggest gaps in employment to population are in our minority communities. Yep. And so understanding what the barriers are and you know how to make a difference there is actually fundamental to hitting maximum employment. That's why you know you see that kind of research in those areas. Cool, cool. Well, Tom, thank you. I can't, we could have kept going. There's a lot of stuff I want to cover, but I want to be. Uh, want to make sure I get uh, your time and respect your time, but I just always enjoy spending a minute since we've had time together because of COVID and other things. So I look forward to being able to spend some getting down to Richmond and get some time with you. Whenever you come up here to Maryland, we'll take you get you some crab cakes. Please do, Troy. And I really appreciate what you're doing and everybody else at TEDCO. So thank you for what you're doing to build the community, the entrepreneurial community in uh, Maryland. Thank you, sir. Well, again, thank you everybody for listening. This is Troy Lamel Stovall. CEO and Executive Director for TEDCO. Again, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for listening. And a special thank you to our guest, Tom Barkin, for joining in today's discussion. For more information on TEDCO and its activities, check us out at www.tedcomd.com. If you enjoyed today's discussion, consider sharing and subscribing to TEDCO Talks.